we do, Trident is striving to make fish the food of the future. Surimi is one of our many ways of doing this. You may not have heard of surimi before, but chances are you have consumed it, as it's often found in popular dishes like California rolls, crab salads, or even seafood-based dips. It has been a staple of the Japanese diet for centuries and is typically made from wild Alaska pollock. It is both an easy and economical way to incorporate the nutritional benefits of seafood into your diet. Let's join John Van Am to gain some insight into how we entered this market with the support of Chris Riley. Chapter 26. Enter Surimi. Opportunity knocking or not? Chris Riley is Trident Seafood's resident egghead and nutty professor. A true Renaissance man, he is as comfortable with Fulbright scholars or listening to a symphony as he is in camouflage chasing elk through the Cascade Mountains. A reader, a thinker, an economist, and a tinkerer, He's ready to come out of his corner swinging whenever an intellectual, mechanical, or political challenge rings his bell. There isn't much he hasn't figured out. If you don't believe it, just ask him. Like so many of the Trident faithful, he began his seafood career on the deck of a fishing boat. I was fishing salmon in the summer. I was having fun and I was making pretty good money, more than the basic college graduate working an entry-level position. I purse-sained in southeast Alaska aboard the Universe, and then for Myron Peterson aboard the Dora R. It turned out we were delivering to what has since become Trident's Ketchikan plant, but that was back before I worked for Trident and before Trident bought the plant. I was attending the University of Washington. I began studying physical oceanography, but was migrating toward geology when I lost interest. There was lots of memorizing rocks. So I signed up for an economics class. I needed another social science, and I was looking down the class list in alphabetical order when I saw economics. I'd read the Wall Street Journal, and I figured that ought to be easy. Econ 101 was full. So I kept going up the course list until I found an opening in Econ 301. The professor warned me, this is the flunk-out class for economics. Then they gave us a test. I flunked the test, but I went to the professor because I didn't want to have to go back to registration. Can I still take this class, I asked. He signed a waiver, and for whatever reason, I read the book and went to class. I enjoyed it a lot and got an A. The prof was Levis Cochin, a student of Milton Freeman's. He was one of the best students Friedman ever had. He's totally disorganized, but he knows everything. He's a true genius. I took advanced courses from Quochin and others who were in the Institute for Marine Studies. My senior thesis was on fisheries economics. I kept a log on the fishing boat and showed how the limited entry program really failed to limit the fishery because the fishing boats had gotten much more efficient. Much of it through a new seining technique called half-pursing, where it took much less time to run the net. The increase in efficiency offset the benefits of limiting the size of the fleet. It was a lot of math. I spent a year on it, but it was something to show people. 
The problem with limited entry was you weren't totally limiting overcapitalization, which everyone thought was the major problem with fisheries. Fishermen still figured out how to increase their fishing power. In 1982, I went to visit a friend of mine in Kenai to go rabbit hunting. I knew my girlfriend, my wife-to-be, would be more amenable to me spending money for a trip if I said I was looking for a job. So I said I was looking for a job, and I actually did. I went into a place in Anchorage called the Alaska Fisheries Development Foundation, AFDF. It turns out they were hiring somebody, and I was in the right place at the right time. Sarah Hemphill hired me, but she was about ready to leave her position as director. She was replaced by a guy named Chris Mitchell. I left school in the middle of the semester and started right in. The foundation was publicly funded through federal Saltonstall Kennedy funds, but they had a million different projects going nowhere. I was advised not to take the job. But when Mitchell came in, he said, we've got to change this. We got to make this into something real. The big problem we both saw was that we weren't concentrating on anything. Because of the diverse composition of the foundation's board, we had to have something for everybody. We had to have something for Kodiak, something for processors, and something for fishermen. And it was just a big waste of funds. The only way you could satisfy your board of directors was to take whatever money you had and split it into so many pieces that you spent more time complying with the reports that had to be filed with each project than you did doing the project. So we closed all the dead projects and reprogrammed the money. At the time, one of the projects we elected to save was a project titled Model Wetfish Fishery with Trident. They were having Chuck do all sorts of things and he'd got some money, but not much money. We'd bought some machinery to do salted cod and cod fillets at the old Akatan plant before it burned down. The first time I met Chuck was in March of 1982. I wasn't managing that project at the time, but I was with the person who was, a Norwegian guy named Nils Dragoy. We met Chuck at the airport in Anchorage, and he was flying through from Akatan. Sharon Gwynn was the program director, and she was trying to pester him into processing cod fillets. That was supposed to be part of the project. We were going to have Trident run cod fillets, and when we got done with the project, we were going to tell the industry exactly what it cost to make them and how to make them and take pictures of them and put out a report, etc. But the project had a fundamental flaw. At the price the market was paying for cod fillets at the time, You'd lose money by the time you cut the head off it. Cod fillets were 85 cents a pound, and there was absolutely no way you could make money. I said to Sharon in Chuck's presence, You know, to me, the exact minute details of how you do something that's really stupid aren't very valuable. All you've got to know is that it's stupid. You don't need to know precisely how you did something that's stupid, because nobody really wants to do it. Chuck said, that's about the most talented thing I've ever heard somebody from a government agency say, so I made a good first impression. After that, we designed a Pollock project. At the time, Pollock hadn't been delivered on shore. We knew we could do that if the boats held it in refrigerated seawater. That had been proven in the past, 
partially through an AFDF project with George Fulton, who'd built the Storm Petrel, a Marco boat with eight fish holds to facilitate fast chilling of the water. At the time, Pollock fillets were not something Americans ate, and there was no good machinery available for processing Pollock fillets. You certainly weren't going to do it by hand. But surimi was something that was not very labor-intensive, and we figured we could probably do it. But we had a couple problems with that project, too. We didn't know how to make surimi. There wasn't any U.S. market for it, and there were import quotas for it in Japan. As Riley and others discovered, the surimi industry was locked up tight by Japan. Japanese vessels harvested and processed the pollock. Japanese manufacturers produced the equipment that cut the fish and scraped the flesh from their bones. Japanese engineers developed the onboard process and the equipment that washed the blood, fat, and soluble proteins from the minced fish flesh and then squeezed the water out of it to produce the odorless fish paste known as surimi. In Japan, the Japanese also developed hundreds of colorful and flavorful products made from surimi to satisfy the sophisticated palates of Japanese consumers. The category of finished products made from surimi paste was collectively known as kamaboko, and one of the most popular product forms was extruded in a flat ribbon, rolled into a long rope, and then colored and cut to resemble the meat from a king crab leg. While imitation crab has since become readily available throughout the U.S., Europe, and elsewhere, it was virtually unknown to American consumers until 1984. Prior to that, what was known about surimi was known in Japan. And Japanese interests were not eager to share their product information, their technology, or their markets with the upstart Pollock industry in Alaska. Major Japanese seafood companies were vertically integrated and had access to raw material through their own U.S. subsidiaries. Naturally, they weren't interested in filling their import quotas with products from competing American companies like Triton. Nor were the Japanese at all interested in sharing their surimi-making technology. Under a policy known as Fish and Chips, the Bureau of Industry and Security in the U.S. Department of Commerce was pressuring Japan and other foreign countries involved in directed fishing and joint ventures to share their fisheries technology as well as their seafood markets. Despite that pressure, foreign interests continued to generate excuses for not buying U.S. fishery products. As Riley characterized the bottom line, the Japanese said, you can't make any good surimi on shore that we'd even want to buy. But even if you did, we'd make sure you didn't get an import quota. It was a tough situation for any American company that wanted to get into the surimi business. It would have been very hard to persuade a private investor or banking institution to take a chance on a game stacked so heavily in favor of the Japanese competition. No one was going to borrow money or spend their own money on machinery to make something the customers don't really want to buy because they're getting it for free from their own fleet. And even if you can figure out how to make it, Riley said, they'll just tell you they can't get an import quota. Fortunately, an alternative surimi market was just beginning to develop in the U.S. If American processors could figure out how to produce it and sell it to American buyers, the foreign import quotas would no longer be a barrier to success. 
To that end, Riley and Mitchell hatched a plan for developing the processing technology and expanding the U.S. markets for surimi at the same time. A few people were already eating surimi crab sticks in the U.S., Riley recalled, and there was a Japanese guy named Frank Kawana in Los Angeles who wanted to build that crab stick business. He knew a lot about making crab sticks, but he had to import his surimi from Japan. So we worked very closely with him, and we came up with the idea that AFDF should become the catalyst for the development of the American surimi industry. Since the well-established Japanese companies that harvested Pollock and produced surimi weren't interested in sharing their expertise, the boys from AFDF had to figure it out by themselves. There was plenty of trial and no shortage of error, but in the end, their fresh approach to the process generated production efficiencies that had been previously untapped even by the experts in Japan. We took all the money we had, which was about $2 million, Riley recalled, and we took our best guess at what a surimi plant consisted of. We worked with Bob Ryan of Ryan Engineering and put together something we thought would work. The line consisted of a Japanese-built Toyo machine which butterflied the pollock and scraped the meat off on a perforated drum. A set of wash tanks, a set of screens, a refiner, a screw press, and a kaboon mixer to mix everything in. By modern standards, the line was a small one, a little toy line. Of course, at the time, it looked like an aircraft carrier to us. When we said we were going to be a catalyst, that's exactly what we did. We brought together every kind of outside business we could to put the Surimi line together. Our business plan was to gift the Surimi line to whoever won the bid. In exchange for the technology and equipment, they would pay us back in Surimi. At the time, this was completely illegal, so we had to negotiate with National Marine Fisheries Service so we could do it this way. Originally, we thought we'd skip the pilot line altogether, go full scale, and give the surimi to people who wanted to make crab sticks out of it in the U.S. We'd subsidize the initial development of the crab stick industry, and eventually, we'd sell the surimi and generate our own grant money. We'd be self-supporting, and we wouldn't have to tell anybody how the government wanted them to use the grants, but that caused a lot of problems. The National Marine Fisheries Service had no way of accommodating a money-making project so AFDF had to reverse the plan by gifting the hardware and accepting the payback in Surimi, which it then gave away to companies that wanted to try their hand at crab stick production. Even as the pilot line was being assembled, AFDF was giving Surimi away to everybody, Riley recalled. How did they get Surimi to distribute before the line was completed? We bought Surimi from Nippon Suisan, Riley said. Originally, they didn't want to sell it to us, but we reminded them of a little thing called antitrust and the political problems that could occur. So we were getting blocks of surimi from Japan. We had surimi in the cold storage. We had air cargo associates. We had the flavor companies and the machinery companies all lined up, and anybody who wanted to get into this very fast-growing business could come by and get whatever they needed. We did a computer search of possible candidate companies, and we sent out 500 letters. When they responded, we said, what do you need? 
Then we'd send out a couple cases of surimi, instructions for their people on how to use it, and a whole list of numbers to call for people in the industry who could show them how to do it. Maury's Fish, which became International Multifoods, as well as Icicle and Lewis Kemp, all of these companies originally got a case of surimi that I sent them via Air Cargo Associates. They played with it and eventually got into the business. Coincidentally, Botter, a major German fish processing equipment manufacturer, had just come out with their 182 filet machine. They showed up at the AFDF office with a big film projector, and they showed us the movie of the 182, and this thing was really something. It filleted 120 Pollock a minute and was so remarkable, I thought it was fake. I figured they cut out all the jammed fish during the whole day's worth of filming and spliced it back together so it looked like it worked. Little did Riley know that the Botter 182 would prove itself the key to unlocking the future for Alaska Pollock. Thirty years after the introduction of the first machine in the U.S., the 182 and its cousin, the Botter 212, are the centerpieces of every Pollock operation that produces fillets and fillet blocks, as well as surimi. But back in 1982, the first machine was clearly ahead of its time and way ahead of the fledgling American industry's capacity to keep up with it. As the project was proceeding, they sent a machine over and Francis Miller of Arctic Alaska tested it, Riley said. They had problems keeping it running, but when it did run, it spit out way too much fish for anybody to handle. At 120 fish a minute, there wasn't a plant in the state that could deal with that many fillets. The machines were expensive, and the machinery was way more sophisticated than a typical plant mechanic could handle without a lot of training. Eventually, the 182 proved its worth in AFDF's pilot surimi operation at Alaska Pacific Seafoods in Kodiak. Its success was a stark contrast to that of the Toya machine that AFDF had acquired from Japan. What made the difference was the engineering and technical support from the German manufacturer, who did not already have strong relationships with Japanese fishing companies trying to protect their access to U.S. Pollock resources and their market share for surimi. Bob Slade of Botter USA believed in the project and got Botter to lend us a 182, Riley recalled. So we had a Toyo and a 182. We ran the Toyo about a day and gave up on it. We couldn't get it to work. But Botter sent two technicians along with their machine, and they were around 24-7 anytime it was on, so we never had any problems with fish. Filleting the Pollock with the 182 before grinding the fillets into surimi was a significant departure from the Japanese method, which utilized the Toyo machine to scrape the flesh from a split butterflied fish. The advantage of the 182 was that the fillets were cleaner, with less skin, bone, blood, and connective tissue, so it was easier to make the surimi white. Additionally, once the market for other product forms developed, the fillets could be individually frozen or packed into blocks for direct consumption or reprocessing into breaded and battered portions. Though the goal of the AFDF project was to produce surimi, the flexibility of the Botter 182 would prove critical in developing the domestic American market for Alaska Pollock. As Riley pointed out, it was actually more efficient to combine the production of fillets and surimi in a 182 operation. Even if the primary end product was a fillet, 
A substantial amount of flesh could still be recovered from the frames and made into good quality surimi. At the time, I relied heavily on my father Jack for help, Riley said. He was a mechanical engineer, but he held numerous licenses, which included civil, chemical, and electrical engineering. I wasn't so sure about the electrical, Riley admitted, with characteristic honesty. He was brilliant, and he could pass the exam, but he wasn't very good at changing a light fixture. He did a lot of work in the food industry with things like mustard, and he ran all the manufacturing for the company that made goobers and raisinets, so he was very familiar with food processing, and he was an engineer, which I wasn't. Bob Ryan was the project engineer for the Surimi effort. He was opinionated and confident and the perfect guy for the job. Bob doesn't really understand the term impossible. He will find some way to do it. He will think outside the box. He's not scared of any technological challenge at all. Sure, he was the person who was paid to do this, but he was mainly motivated by trying to do something that nobody else had done before. He and Chuck don't get along, Riley offered as another honest aside. But I think Bob recognizes that it's because they're so much alike. They're both extremely smart, and they don't like to hear anybody tell them, you can't do this. What was built was basically a Japanese line, but we couldn't just go to the Japanese and say, give us a line. So we went to the individual manufacturers and said, we want a screw press. We want this, and we want that. But we didn't do things their way and we couldn't have afforded a line that would do it their way. For a long time, the Japanese said, you can't make surimi that way, and their prejudice persisted until the late 90s, Riley said. The Japanese seemed more interested in how Americans were making their surimi than in the quality of the product that was coming out the tail end of the process. Riley and others considered this yet another artificial barrier to opening Japan's surimi market to producers from the United States. After all, if American producers couldn't sell their product, they couldn't afford to process it. And if they couldn't demonstrate their ability to utilize the billions of pounds of pollock available inside the USEEZ, the fish would have to be allocated back to the foreign fleets, including the fleet from Japan. At the time, the market was completely Japanese, Riley recalled. They would tell you what you had to do, and you had to do it. They said 75% moisture content or we won't buy it. So we had to put baffles in the decanter to squeeze the meat a little bit drier, but we got that working in Kodiak. Once the AFDF Pilot Surimi project was up and running in 1986, Riley began to look around for other opportunities in private industry. After all, he was a pioneer in the development of Surimi processing in Alaska, and the market for artificial crab was expanding rapidly. The fire at the Trident plant in Akatan opened the door for expansion into Surimi and other Pollock products, but the company wasn't ready to tap Riley's Surimi expertise just yet. So he went looking for other commercial opportunities beyond the nonprofit structure of AFTF. I was kind of a hot commodity at the time, Riley recalled, because I was the only white guy who was making Surimi, and I had a chance to work for Arctic Alaska or for George Steinbrenner at American Shipbuilding. At the time, Steinbrenner, the infamous owner of the New York Yankees, was heavily invested in his Tampa shipyard with dreams of launching the first American-built cruise ships since the 1950s. Shipbuilding had made Steinbrenner a millionaire in the first place, 
and it was shipbuilding that bankrolled his purchase of the Yankees. But he was known for his baseball, not his boats. Quoted in the Tampa Bay Times, he said, When you're a shipbuilder, nobody pays attention to you. But when you own the New York Yankees, they do, and I love it. By 1987, the cruise ship idea was foundering, and the shipyard was in deep trouble, casting about for anything to keep afloat. One of Steinbrenner's pipe dreams was to produce Surimi on a 400-foot, seven-story barge that would follow a fleet of catcher vessels chasing Pollock around the Bering Sea. Riley worked on the project from his office in Anchorage until Steinbrenner pulled the plug. But the race for Pollock had begun, and with so many people interested in Pollock all of a sudden, Riley began to worry that Americans might destroy their newly won resource as fast as they could develop it. It haunted me, Riley said. All of the things I learned at the University of Washington in economics were telling me that I was on a train headed off a cliff, even if we were successful. If we didn't change the way we were doing things, we'd end up like all other fisheries, an overcapitalized mess. Once a fishery gets overcapitalized, it becomes a threat to itself. If you start having a little bit of biological trouble with the resource, nobody wants to commit economic suicide by cutting back harvest in the short term. So they pretend the problem's not there. Next thing you know, you don't have a resource, and that's where you end up. I was 100% certain that was where we were headed if we didn't do something about overcapitalization. One of the last things I did prior to leaving AFDF in 1986 was write a paper suggesting that going forward, we Americanize the fishery with a processor quota to be distributed on the basis of processing participation and a harvester quota based on harvesting participation. Riley's plan would have offered fishing quota as an incentive for U.S. harvesters to demonstrate they could catch all of the fish that foreign fleets were harvesting in U.S. waters. Similarly, U.S. processors would receive processing quota as a reward for developing processing capacity to displace foreign motherships and catcher processors. Under the terms of the Magnuson Act, U.S. harvesters and processors had first crack at the quota, and once they demonstrated they could utilize it, the foreign fleets would be pushed out and the American fishermen and processors who took the risk to do it would eventually own the privilege of utilizing the public resource. As soon as we got rid of directed fishing by the foreign fleets, there would be no available harvesting history, and the catch would all be allocated at that point, Riley explained. And as soon as we got rid of foreign processing, that would be the end of generating additional processing history. To be fair, Riley said, we would announce ahead of time that this is what we were going to do. But once the homesteading of the Bering Sea was over, the shares would be allocated, the fences would be in place, and that would be the end of new entry to the fisheries unless the new entrants were prepared to buy their way in. Riley's fear of overcapitalization was well-founded, and his solution was clairvoyant, but it was at least a decade ahead of its time. Back in 1986, the American groundfish fleet was only beginning to see the opportunity of investing in pollock harvesting capacity, and very few groundfish entrepreneurs were ready to consider a program that would eventually limit their opportunity to invest in it further. A few people like Wally Pereira really liked it, Riley recalled, but most people just absolutely hated it. Consequently, 
the early battle for control of the Alaska groundfish resource was essentially an open-ended race for fish, with the cliff of overcapitalization waiting at the finish line. Despite Riley's warning, the race for Alaska Pollock would continue for more than a decade, at which time Alaska Senator Ted Stevens single-handedly pushed through the American Fisheries Act in 1998. Chris Riley's personal odyssey through the developing American surimi industry took him first to George Steinbrenner's American shipbuilding in Florida, then to Trident as it began to rebuild its burned-out processing plant in Akatan, and then to a converted oil tanker named the Bering Trader, owned by Lewis Kemp. Unlike Steinbrenner's barge, Kemp's Bering Trader actually did make some surimi, but his project failed too. Despite the failures, Riley was learning more with each successive step. By the time he returned to Trident in 1989, he was ready to put together a fully integrated Pollock fillet, fillet block, and surimi operation on the beach at Akutan. The fire took almost a year out of production, Riley said, but the cod plant was rebuilt and it looked just like it did before. It hadn't changed much because you could go in there and you'd think you were in the same building. By this time, Akatan had two Botter 182s making IQF Pollock fillets too. The IQF fillets were going to Long John Silvers and there were some shatter packs and blocks. They were also building the new Pollock plant. The shell was up, but that was about it. I had a little office downstairs by the elevators with stacks of manuals and books and drawings, way more stuff than I had time to study. Trident had made a deal with Nippon Suisan that they would give Trident everything it needed to get into the surimi business, and the Sui would buy half of the surimi. They would also supply technology and technicians and whatnot. Actually, it was a pretty good deal. Trident paid about $200,000 for the design and the technical expertise to start production. Despite what he called a pretty good deal, Riley was skeptical of the design. Mr. Fujimoto was the head representative from Nasui, Riley recalled. He was a young guy. He had to learn English to do the job, and he did. But I'd just come from the Bering Trader, where things didn't work. And when things ain't working, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It's the end of the world. I told you so means nothing. So I was extremely critical of everything that was being done at Akatan. I assumed everything was done wrong. Everything was coming over from Japan in lots of different crates, and I had talked to Chuck and Bart to see what they expected to do with it. Their expectation was a million pounds of surimi a day, but they wanted to do IQF and blocks, too. I don't think it was skullduggery, but you wouldn't ever have produced more than a million pounds of any one thing with that plant the way it was designed. And the design filled the entire space that Chuck gave them with no room for anything more. Downstairs, it had about half as many plate freezers as we have now, and we had no place to do anything other than pack surimi downstairs. Upstairs, it had two Toyo machines and room for four botters, but the botters just ended at a wall. What good is a fillet machine that feeds into a wall? You weren't going to be able to get any row except off of the Toyo machines, and at the time, the Toyo machines didn't have automatic row pullers, so there would have been no means to capture row. There was no hope of doing IQF fillets, absolutely none. There was no spot for a freezer, and there was no room to expand. The more Riley studied the plans from Japan, the more he was convinced 
that the new Akatan plant would reach full capacity quickly and be hamstrung by its limitations. The rest of the Alaska groundfish industry, the Japanese financed shore plants in Dutch Harbor, and the Norwegian subsidized factory trawler fleets at sea would soon outpace Trident's processing capacity and ultimately win the race for the resource. I was pretty confident there would be new entry if it was profitable, Riley said, and we would fall behind if we couldn't move forward. If we ran out of real estate in Akatan, and they didn't run out of real estate in Dutch Harbor, we would be in last place before it was over. We'd started out first, but the big plants in Dutch Harbor were coming. We would have been stuck, and it wasn't going to be pretty. I wasn't going to tell Chuck to use these drawings, because I knew they weren't going to work. So I went in and told him. I assumed that we would eventually privatize this fishery because it made so much sense. But I also knew there was a possibility we would end up with an Olympic fishery for a long period of time, and it would be based on history. So we had to be able to rock and roll. The only thing for Riley to do was redesign the layout. So we cut up the drawings and put the plant back together a different way, Riley said. There was a big lab downstairs, so I eliminated that. Upstairs, there was space taken up with offices and shops, so I said, okay, they're gone. This was all taking place just at the time that CAD CAM design and construction was coming into use. So I went to Floor Metal, and I took all of the drawings and had them put on their CAD machine. And I sat down at the computer with the gal that ran the machine. I had a little stool. And I just had them do layout after layout after layout. Then I went to Chuck with the drawings. Here's what you have, I told him. Here's what's already signed off, and here's what's on the way. This is alteration number one, and this is what it will get you. This is alteration number two, and this is alteration number three. We had three levels of alteration, with increasing cost and increasing gross capacity and flexibility. And Chuck said, okay, we're going to do number three. That included the biggest spiral freezer you could put in the building, and we had one of them and room for another. That's pretty much what's up there now. We had a 400-ton meal plant, and that was somewhat limited, and we had to get a new EPA permit to change anything. So Joe Plesher and I did the research to prove that it would cost us too much money to run stick water, wastewater from processing activity, into the dryer because of the salt. To expand our permit, we had to get the oceanography done and address all kinds of stuff. We did it in about one weekend, and they accepted it. It went right through, and that allowed us to dump the stick water. It's soluble, so it's not a big deal to just dump it into the bay. And that one change allowed us to run even with Nasui in Dutch Harbor, which had exactly twice our fish meal capacity to begin with. It was a race for fish, not simply on the harvesting side, but also on the processing side, product recovery side, and marketing side. Since Japan controlled the bulk of the global surimi market, the plants that Japanese companies financed in Dutch Harbor focused almost entirely on surimi to supply Japan's domestic market. This made it difficult for Trident to compete by simply producing more surimi. So the redesign of the Akitan plant allowed Trident to produce fillet blocks and IQF fillets as well, opening up alternative market opportunities in the U.S. and Europe. Diversification and flexibility were the keys to Trident's success. 
Overall, the design allowed us to expand production as we needed to, Riley recalled. When we needed a new line, we threw a line in, and eventually we got up to 3 million pounds going through that plant every day. We were doing over 2 million a day the first year, all Pollock. Another unique thing about that plant was that it didn't separate the raw material. To this day, there are people who think you need to separate which Pollock are going to Surimi and which Pollock are going to fillets. That's crazy. It's like saying, this is a steak cow and this is a hamburger cow, when really, you make a lot more money if you make steaks and hamburger from every cow. This plant was designed so the fish would go down the line and first, you'd make all of them into fillets. If one fillet was good and one fillet was not so good for a fillet, that one would go to surimi. So the fillets from any fish could be channeled to IQF, block, or surimi as necessary. And the belly flaps from the fillet line could easily go to surimi too. In the end, Riley was very proud of his redesign at Akitan, and his Japanese counterpart understood its value too. Mr. Fujimoto knew by the time the big Nisui plant was built in Dutch Harbor that they should have built it like Akitan. He said, these guys just don't understand. They bought one Bader 182, and he understood, you can't run just one Bader 182 because you can't tell when it's not working right. You have nothing to compare it with. You need a whole bunch of them. The result was, they just used their Toyo machines and made a whole lot of surimi and drove the price down. We were able to do individual fillets, fillet blocks, and surimi, and it made a very big difference to the bottom line. that you enjoyed chapter 26, Enter Surimi. If you're looking for some inspiration to incorporate more of this delicious seafood into your diet, check out Trident Seafood's recipe page. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode is released on Wednesday, November 11th. We appreciate you joining us and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams.